Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Book Chat. I'm Madeline Dale. I'm the host for today, and I have another fantastic guest for you guys to meet. I'm going to bring her in and let her introduce herself. All right, everyone, this is Anne, and she is going to tell us a little about herself and her work. Well, first, you can call me Annie. Only my mother calls me Anne, and she's a snob. But since <laughs> I was redheaded and freckled growing up, I pretty much became Annie to most people. Um, I have a really odd background. I, I was a sportscaster and a, and a print reporter. I'm an author. I was a teacher for 20 years. Um, I'm a foster mom and uh, and a rock collector. So it's been and, I, and I'm a, I was a sports official for 40 years. So I I refereed football, baseball, ice hockey, soccer, and basketball. Over. You have to be a tough woman to be a ref. Let me tell you well, that right there. <laughs> I, I only retired from uh, high school football uh, 2019, and it still breaks my heart. I miss, I miss foot. Are you a football fan? I not so much a football fan as I am basketball, but my husband is a very diehard OU fan. So, ah, <laughs> uh, so you, I'm going to give you a question, and you'll win a beer on it. Okay, oh, how no. many referees are on a football field? Oh gosh. It's a trick question because it's the same answer whether it's Pop Warner, high school, pros, college. It's I want to say like at least four because one. Is it really just one? Yes, it's the white hat. It's the one that says I have holding 73 offense, right? That's that's the referee. That's the only referee. The other ones are back judges and umpires. They have other <gasps> positions. So there's just one umpire, one referee. That's the one with the white hat. That's usually the crew chief. And for the last 24 years, I was the referee and crew chief. Man. So I got to be in charge and I kind of like that. That hey, that does make it a lot of fun, especially on those games like that. Gosh. Yeah. I have seen some intense games over the years. So oh, yeah. I've actually have, felt bad for refs at times. I've had to have police escorts to my car. I understand. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, if you're a sports fan, you should be worried about the lack of officials because uh, there just aren't enough. People aren't willing to deal with it anymore. And when I made a bad call in the old days, I could go home and it was over. But now people put it online. So we're yeah. having a very hard time retaining young officials. They, but most of them quit within the first two years. So I, at some point, you may go out to a game and there won't be a game. Yeah. Without the ref, it's only recess. We've had so, a few soccer games like that for yeah. my son. I mean, he's four and it's still like they're just they don't have enough. So, nope. yeah, it's crazy. And, but like, I've, I've never been one to yell at the ref. I've accidentally kicked a ref because I was a cheerleader, not on purpose. Because no. <laughs> like, we, you know how when you're in the zone, you're having to keep up with all the players right. and everything. And cheerleaders in the middle of like a cheer and you do jumps or a kick or something. It was just kind of like a oh, that's just random incident. I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's not a problem. But unfortunately, <laughs> officials are getting hit intentionally. Yes. And, and that's a huge problem. That's assault. You wouldn't accept that in a restaurant. Someone came up and hit you. Yeah. So, yeah, it's getting to be a problem. And, and though I miss it, I, I think it's getting a lot worse than it used to. I have this idea that anybody who plays a sport or as a child who plays a sport should have to officiate one game, one game once. Ooh. So you understand yeah. because, you know, out there we have one look at it. Whereas when you watch an NFL game, you get 10 looks at it and they still aren't sure. Yeah. Yet, Everybody at home is sure they know what the answer is. So oh, yeah. it's a difficult avocation. I do miss it, though, sometimes. And I miss baseball. I did baseball for 25 years, too. See, I, I cheered and I played softball, and it's like I, I miss it 
so bad. Yeah. So, but it's, I, as much as I loved it, I would not want to help them. Cause like, I remember some of the players getting aggressive, which I loved our umpire back when we were doing summer ball and stuff. He was an awesome umpire. He would pick on us left and right, but he was so cool. But I, I felt bad for him because some of the players were not. It's sad because people don't understand. We love the game as much as the players do, or we wouldn't be out there. And, uh, you know, I, I, as I said, I taught high school for 20 years and it was worse for me retiring from football than it was from the classroom. I don't know what that says about me, but um, yeah, I miss football much more than I miss teaching. Yeah, I believe that it was more fun. I'm sure to do the, the whole rough stuff than the class yeah. stuff. But we won't even get into the whole teaching debacle my mom's oh, okay. teacher. So <laughs> get the, I know all that I like on that side of it. But let's talk about your books. You've got quite a few awesome books here. Thank uh, you. We've got uh, Wolf Catcher, Wild Horses on the Salt, and the Castle, A Light in the Desert, and The Scent of Rain. The centerfront is like it's loading like children <laughs> like to remember their names, you know. Yeah, well, they are kind of like your book babies. So mm-hmm. which one was your favorite one to write? Oh my gosh, that's <laughs> hard. Um first of all, let me say that most of the people I grew up with are astounded that I'm an author. Yeah. Because I'm dyslexic. Mm-hmm. And growing up, they didn't have a word for the fact that I couldn't read. I was just stupid and lazy. And and it wasn't until I was in my 40s when I after I became a teacher. Um, they made me become a reading teacher because there weren't enough, enough kids in my journalism department. And, and my, my principal called me and he goes, you're going to teach reading. I said, I can't. I'm dyslexic. I can't teach reading. And uh, so it turns out for five years, I taught in an inner city school. Um, yeah. I taught for about five years teaching kids how to read who might read at the first or second grade level. And I suppose the good part of it was I said, look, guys, I didn't read very well. I wasn't a great student in high school. I never read for pleasure. Mm-hmm. Okay. I couldn't imagine doing that. And uh, I said, if I can do it, you can. And it helped some of the kids to, to think a teacher had that problem. Yeah. So that I became a writer is very strange to my best friend from high school said, how the hell did you ever become an author? I'm like, I, I don't know. But <laughs> actually, I do know it was, uh, I became a sportscaster, which was my career goal originally. So I had to write stories every night for the news mm-hmm. twice, you know, usually two, two newscasts. So I wrote, thousands of news stories. Then when I was approaching 40, I was not pretty enough to be in front of a camera anymore, which is what happens to women sometimes. And I went into print reporting and I just started writing longer stories. And, and so the jump into novels was like, oh, well, it's just a longer story. And, and um, I just kind of fell into it. But to answer your question, which is my favorite, my favorite to write was Mm -hmm. uh, Wolfcatcher. Um, because I was originally hired to um, write, write a magazine article about the man they call the magician. Now, I live in Arizona, mm-hmm. and this is a true story. This man was buried 900 years ago outside of Flagstaff, Arizona. His tomb was found in 1939, and it had 600 magnificent funerary objects in it, jewelry, turquoise jewelry, and, and crystals, and paints, and, and pottery, and weapons, and, and these very strange swords. The wooden swords had animal hoofs and human hands carved into the, into the bottoms of them on the hilts. And the Hopi workers that were there helping to exhume him, like kind of stepped back from the grave and went, oh my, he's a magician. And there happened to be an artist there 
drawing. They drew a pic pictures of him and all his funerary objects. And then, of course, in those days, we, we dug people up and put them in museums. We do not do that anymore. It's very disrespectful. Yes. But they determined that this man was looked sort of Caucasian. Now, do the math. How is that possible 900 years ago? Mm -hmm. So all that Columbus discovered America silliness is not real. Um, and so I was hired to find out who this man might have been. Mm -hmm. And I got in all kinds of trouble. I was from the East Coast. I, I didn't understand about Native Americans. We have 24 Native American tribes here in Arizona. Yeah. Order of our land is owned by Native Americans. And I, I kind of was like a bull in a china shop. I went in and said, oh, let's do a DNA test on him. And that's not appropriate. Yeah. I kept putting my foot in my mouth and the Hopi tribe got mad at me. And so basically the story of Wolfcatcher is the modern day story of the reporter trying to find out who he was. And then it goes back 900 years to the time he lived in wow. and, and using his funerary objects that I had to trace like far. I mean, he, he had stuff from hundreds of miles away before there were any wheels, right? It's not like anybody had a cart to pull anything around. Yeah. So it was fascinating to do the research. I enjoyed the archaeologists. And even though I got in some trouble, a little yeah. bit, my editor said, just write the story. And so after I wrote that, I turned it into a book. And I really enjoyed that research. Um, the other one would be wild horses on the salt. And we have a huge wild horse problem out here. Mm -hmm. uh, we are building homes where they live. They're getting hit by cars. People are shooting them. Um, and it's about the problem of the wild horses. I love the horses. I do, but they're causing a lot of problems yeah. um, ecologically. And so I, I, I wrote a novel about that, but also about a woman escaping domestic violence. So I take things that interest me, subjects that interest me or events that interest me. And I write a ra fiction around them. Uh, a light in the deserts about uh, the wreck of the Amtrak Sunset Limited in 1995, an act of sabotage. Never, it's a cold case. It's never been solved. It was a deadly sabotage very soon after the Oklahoma City bombing. And it was crazy here in our desert. There were hundreds of reporters and police. They've never solved it. So I went out and, and followed around the evidence around and I wrote a story about what might have happened and then tied it in with post-traumatic stress soldiers, that kind of thing. So I basically read the paper every day and I come up with stories that interest me, which makes my agent crazy because I don't write in one genre. It's, There's it's, nothing wrong with the writing in multiple genres because I write multiple genres too. It's more fun. It, it, and if, it, if you're not interested, my agent once said, why don't you write a romance? I said, I can't. I tried. I just can't do it. But I, if I'm not interested in the subject matter, I, I can't get into it. But that that's tough to get a reader base then. Because if you are known for romance writing, then the romance people will follow you along. But for me, I've written contemporary fiction, women's fiction, suspense thriller, young adult fiction, historical fiction. It's like, where do you put me? So Yeah. But it's more fun. You have more fun that way. And sometimes, really, that's all it's about is enjoying what you're doing. Oh, and absolutely. I love researching, too, like, for the stories. And it fascinates me, like, back, okay, I'm going to go back to the wolf catcher with researching into the history of everything with the different tribes and everything. What was the most interesting thing you learned about the culture? Um, I was fascinated by pottery. And I know that sounds weird, but pottery was one of the greatest inventions of, of mankind. 
-hmm. Pottery and agriculture made modern humans. And there are so many different kinds of pottery up there that they found in his grave. And it turns out that area was a big, uh, kind of like think of it as, as Chicago's O'Hare Airport. I mean, everybody's coming from somewhere else, mm -hmm. coming through the area. So they had many different tribes and, and they were bringing different fashion styles of pottery that were so exquisite. I went to the Museum of Northern Arizona to look at some of these things. I, I'm amazed. Some of this pottery was so intricate. It looked like it was vibrating. I mean, literally the lines were so thin and so close together on these magnificent pots. So I, I did a great deal of studying about the pots mm -hmm. and um, that helped me kind of figure out where things came from in his grave. Though I will say I was not permitted to see any of it. Yeah. I had a problem. I, and this is something else I learned. Um, archaeologists are very touchy about upsetting the tribes, because when I said I'd like to do a story in the magician and the archaeologist at the museum said, oh, yeah, come on up, because I'd worked with him on another story. And um, I got there and he wasn't there. Oh. And there was a message saying he's not here. He's not coming back. He's not talking to you. I said, what are you talking about? I came up to do the interviews. I'm here for two days. And, and then, nope, nope. And so I called my editor. I said, I don't know what to do. He won't talk to me. And, and they wouldn't let me see any of the it, any of the funerary objects. And he said, don't worry about it. Go over to the museum, go over to uh, Northern Arizona University. I have a friend there who's an archaeologist. He'll talk to you. What that man explained to me was that all of the archaeologists have to be uh, on good terms with the native, with, with the Hopi and the Navajo or whoever's, who's ever land they're working on. Because if they make them angry, they'll pull their, their, their ability to dig. Yeah. So, this guy was just, other guy was avoiding me. And the other man who was wonderful, who is the archeologist I kind of sh show in the book, I never put his name in the acknowledgements to protect him. That's so, a good call. Yeah, but I did learn, I learned so much. And so my character, it's clear my character is me. Um, I learned so much about the right way to do things and not to just barge in. I mean, I was a sportscaster for, and sports writer 15 years. I'm not used to being delicate. You know, I got to charge into locker rooms and things. So I'm afraid I was a little heavy handed at first. And my my character, Kate Butler, learned just like I did. So mm -hmm. I truly and I truly enjoyed creating the world that was up in, in the uh, 11th, 10th century, I guess it was. Because at the time uh, the magician lived, uh, there was a volcano that erupted, mm -hmm. the Sunset Crater Volcano, which is now a, a national park. Yeah. Uh, and it was created when he was alive. So it became an area of great spirituality to people. They believed their gods were at work there. So there were a lot of people coming and going from that area. And, and it also changed their world because it, it, there was a, uh, uh, what's it called? An ash spew for like 800 square miles. So some people lost all their land and yeah. all their, no one died that they, we know of. We've, they've never found any bodies but because the people were warned, it, it was a gradual building over a couple mm -hmm. months of this cinder cone. So um, you had a lot of people on the road without their food or anything. And so there was probably some warring going on. And some people took these wanderers into their tribes and some were left abandoned. It, I mean, it was probably a pretty messy time. Yeah, so, I can um, imagine so. Yeah, so I, it was very much fun for me to, to investigate all that. I, I'm a reporter in my head, whether I'm you know, technically I'm not one anymore, but I still Yeah. It just it doesn't turn off though. No. I actually interviewed somebody the other day that um 
wrote a huge book about the Coca-Cola trail. He was also a reporter back in the day. And it's just, you have those tendencies that just don't go away. And it actually yeah. creates a lot of fascinating stories. Well, because, you know, we're used to asking questions. Uh -huh. and, and some people are like, God, you're nosy. I said, I can't help it. I can't help. It. And I'm still a referee in my head. So, you know, yeah. I don't think those things go away. No, they don't. They You do them for so long and they stick. But the whole, like, anything with Native American stuff fascinates me. I, I'm in Oklahoma, so I have, oh, like, you know. tried to, like, purposely learn about that kind of stuff. Because a lot of it was left out of our school's curriculum, which oh, is totally I know. ridiculous. I know. But it's sad. Yeah, and it's, especially, like, in Oklahoma. I mean, like, there's so many different tribes in this state. Like, it's it's insane. They shouldn't have left it out. But I've made it, like part of like what I want my son to learn growing up is of course more about the culture, like the original culture of the Native Americans, not what our world has made, I guess well, you could no, say. Look, so. I, I'm, I was a history teacher for one year. I love history. I, I just finished my, or about a year ago, finished my second historical fiction novel, which hasn't been sold yet. But um, I really love studying history. And it's very sad because so many kids find it boring Mm -hmm. And I said, we need to make it interesting. We need to teach. If you don't learn this stuff, you don't understand what's happened in the world already. I know it's an old cliche, but we're doomed to do it again. Yep. So history repeats I, itself. I truly love history. And um, I was very fortunate in college. I got to study it in Europe. So, um, you know, we nice. talk about the World War One Battle of Verdun, and then we'd pop over to visit it, you know. <laughs> so I, I was cool. very skilled. Yeah, I yeah. was. Um, and interacting with it like that makes it more fun. And I oh, feel like boy. there's more opportunities to utilize technology for that these days than what it was back when I was yeah, in we high didn't school. Have stuff. We didn't so, have yeah, my school got technology stuff my senior year, and it was just the early stuff because we were a poor podunk America kind of school. And it just, <laughs> but I was always a history buff. I enjoyed, especially world history and everything. And Got to go to curriculum contests and stuff and shocked everybody because they they never wanted to send me before. And here I go and I placed first and second and everything. And they're like, okay, why didn't we send her earlier? And I'm like. And and your job now is to make your son love history. Uh, yes, definitely. We've already traveled to so many places. It's Good. My dad works in a museum, so we kind of get to see a little bit of the That's behind the fun. scenes stuff. And it's. They have a lot of Native American stuff, too, in their museum because it's in southeast Oklahoma. But it's just so cool to see some of the stuff that they get. And you get to see things before they put it on display. Not touch it or anything, but, yeah. like, look at this or stuff like that. What's really well, cool is they have one of the dinosaurs that were dug up um, in Atoka. Like, well, it's not the actual dinosaur bones, but it's a replica of the Acrocanthosaurus. Right. And my son's been obsessed with it since he was born. So, yeah, the uh, I will say this about Wolfcatcher a great deal of the theme is the problem of archaeological looting mm. and how much of a problem that is. We have about like a hundred thousand sites here that have never even been cataloged. So uh, when I was interviewing uh, people about, you know, why, why aren't we busting all these uh, looters? They're like, we don't even know what they're taking. We, I mean, they have two guys to cover the entire Navajo reservation. Oh and, wow. and it's almost impossible. Yeah. And that's almost impossible to convict them. So there's quite a bit about archaeological looting in Wolfcatcher. 
Man, and problem. I hadn't even considered that. That that is probably a huge problem. Well, well, and here's the problem: if you dig up a pot and you remove it from where it was, you've removed it from its place in history. So you can't study it anymore. It's just a pretty pot now. But if it's in its location where it has been resting for hundreds of years, we can learn something from it. But yeah. people go in with backhoes and just plow through these old pueblos and steal things. And and I I'm, I hope we can stop doing that. That is like hurts my heart to think I know. of. Because that's, there's so much. Cool. Yeah, the bad guy in Wolfcatcher is is one of those guys. Man. Yeah, so. That is uh, insane. Gosh. That just, that hurts me. And yeah. I guess I don't, I, because I like history and stuff, I like discovering those new creative things like that. I, yeah, it may not bother somebody who doesn't enjoy history as much, but the hard thing for me is I told you I was I'm a, I'm a rock collector, and here in yeah. Arizona, the mines, and I get to go out in wilderness, and I love it out there. It's hard for me not to touch those things. Mm -hmm. And when I was researching Wolfcatcher, um, I picked up pieces of pottery because it was on public land. I didn't think it was a problem. Something else I learned, you don't do that. Yeah. And I used it to help write the story. And then I got, I felt so guilty looking at it on my desk every day. I drove back up there and put it back mm. because I thought I should know better than that. But I didn't know better when I started. I knew better when yeah. I started. It was a learning uh, yeah. process. And I put it I, all back. Yeah, I, I collect rocks too, but I prefer to like buy them. When I see oh, I them, prefer to dig them up. It's more but treasure. Just because I've I grew up a lot of times. I remember people going and digging up arrowheads and stuff, and that bothered me as a kid because yeah. I was like, "What? Where do they even go to find these?" And I'm like, as I got older, I was like, "Why are they finding these? And isn't there if there's more there, like shouldn't somebody do something?" Well, the, the laws are different in every state. Here, if you're on private land and the owners mm -hmm. give you permission, you can dig up anything but a body. Okay. But if you're on public land, you just don't pick those things up. You leave them alone. Yeah. And certainly if you're on native land, you can't even pick up rocks on native land. That's they true. will take your car. Yeah. So, and I don't blame them one bit. I don't either. It's sacred land. Like there's a lot of it is sacred mm -hmm. stuff. Um, I know there is, I'm trying to remember, it's been a while, up on Talamina Drive in like, Oh, it's not Beaver's Bend State Park. It's north of Beaver's Bend State Park. Anyway, there's we have a big nature reserve in southeast Oklahoma. We've got the wild horses there, too. Not quite as many as what you have there. Um, but there is, I remember going on a family trip and seeing a graveyard. It was really, really creepy. But, like, you could look at it, but you could enter it. And I remember hearing ghost stories about a child that was buried there that sometimes you could see her spirit sitting in this tree that was shaped like the number four. And that's just the kind of stuff, like, they find these graveyards throughout that protected land. And, like, it's just creepy but cool, kind of, yeah. like, so, yeah. And I don't know if people stole things beforehand, but it kind of makes me wonder, like, why? Like, what was removed from those areas that could have well, been important You mentioned that, that we didn't learn about Native American culture and history class. Mm -hmm. Maybe we need to do that so people yeah. understand that you can't, that this is a problem. That yeah. would we allow someone to go to a graveyard and dig up grandma and take her wedding ring? No, we wouldn't. Yet we think nothing of going and finding 
a Native American grave and taking the stuff out of it. And that's just wrong. And honestly, I never gave a thought to it till I moved out here to Phoenix and and started doing this research. And so I've, yeah. I've learned the errors of my error of my ways. I have. You came in contact with the culture yeah. and it taught you something. And mm -hmm. I feel like that's kind of what's happened with me in Oklahoma with being around so many different tribes in different areas and everything. Because I grew up in more of the Choctaw area of the state, mm -hmm. um, McCurtain County. And there's a lot of Choctaw tribes there, Choctaw tribe members. And it's just, it's interesting to take all the different knowledge and stuff. Because I had a friend, she's Native American, who taught our class. Well, okay, she tried to teach our class a little bit about the history um, and the songs and the flute making and stuff that her grandparents did and continued to do. And it was just so fascinating because it was something that was different from what we were being taught. In it was never even included in yeah. anything we were taught. Yeah. You know, growing up in the, on the East Coast, there are very few Native Americans. And the ones that are Native American... Are, look very much like European, more like Europeans than Asians. You know, there's a different, I, I am convinced that European 10,000 years ago when we had the ice age walked across the ice sheet following the animals, they came here. There, there are too many examples of things that don't belong in the Americas. Like for example, down in Peru, there's uh, jade carvings that have been there for 2000 years. You tell me how that's possible. The yeah. Chinese were here 2000 years ago. They have on the coast, might also be the coast of Peru, there's a, a settlement they found that's also a couple thousand years old. And it turns out it was a settlement of Polynesian people. Wow. How did they know? Chickens. The chickens that they had with them that they ate, the bones were from Polynesia. How did they get there 2,000 years ago? This is not, you know, there have been people coming and going for thousands of years here. But if you ask all of us that live here. Oh no, Colum the Native Americans were here for a while and Columbus came in 1492, please. There've yeah. been lots of contact before that. Oh yeah, it was not just sitting here. So mm -hmm. it's, it's crazy, crazy, crazy. So I'm gonna swing us back towards your books and okay. the writing process. How do you get started on a book? Do you plan it all out before you start writing it out or you just fly I, by the seat of your pants? I'm a pantser. I am a pantser, but what happens is I get kind of, a, I, until I retired from teaching, I only wrote in the summer. Mm -hmm. So I wrote, I would write a book over the summer, but leading up to that, I'd get an idea like mm -hmm. in the fall, like maybe this would be the idea for a book. And I'd start thinking about it and then I'd, I'd research it. And uh, then I would contact people that might be interesting characters. For example, in Wild Horses on the Salt, there's a cattle rancher. I don't know anything about cattle ranching. So I called up a cattle rancher and said, can I come out and interview you? I'm writing a book. He said, sure. It's amazing how much people want to be interviewed. It's really funny. And I got out there and he also was a beekeeper. Oh, cool. And so I ended up with bees in my book. I write a lot about nature. Mm -hmm. um, I love wilderness and Arizona is a magnificent state. It's not just desert. We have mountains, we have lakes, we have rivers, we have, you know, and Sonoran Desert, which is a place where creatures and plants live here that don't live anywhere else on the planet. Mm -hmm. It is a fantastically beautiful place. So all of my first five books are all about Arizona. And, and I spent a lot of time in the wilderness. So I go out and I meet people in weird places. And so this guy happened to be a beekeeper. So I put it, made him a beekeeper. 
um, which I hadn't thought of. Uh, I went and picked a location, an, an old inn on a river here, and I went and walked around and decided that it sh my book should take place there. So I just go in and say, I'm a writer, I'm an author, and I'd like to use your location for ideas. And, and so then I get all that research done, and then I, what I used to do is write the book in the summer. And once I had all that done, um, I could knock out a book in a couple months. Nice. So by the, time, by the time I went back to school, I usually had a book. But um, now I'm retired from full-time teaching, so um, I write whenever I want. And, and the problem about writing, and I know this isn't what you asked, but it's the promotional aspects of trying to get yes. books sold. Ooh, Even yeah. if you're with giant publishers, and I'm not. I'm, I, I, you, you like baseball, right? Yes. I'm going to do a baseball analogy for publishing. <laughs> like minor league baseball. You start out in rookie ball, then you go to A ball and double A and triple A, and hopefully someday you get to the major leagues, right? Publishing is exactly like that. It is. There are rookie ball level publishers and, and A ball and double A. I think I'm just barely in triple A publishing right now. I have three different publishers. Um, but, you know, I'm very fortunate that I have a pension and social security because living on why to make a living as an author is very difficult. Yes, it is. <laughs> it is almost impossible. And when young people say, oh, I'm going to quit my job and become a writer. I'm like, honey, don't do that. Please don't do that. Please have an income. Yeah, have a backup or a part time job. You've got to have something that's going to put food on the table because it's Unless you sign up with the big five, you're not going to have an income. That's for correct. A while. And, and honestly, um, you know, I write because I love to write. Would it be lovely to have a Netflix series based on my books? Of course it would. But that's like winning the lottery, like the Powerball lottery. And, and it's very and even when you do get published, which is very exciting. Um, now, what do you do? Now you have to go out and 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 sell yourself and sell your books. Yeah. Now I'm 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 happy to do that. I was on TV for ten years, and so I'm I'm used to having to be in front of a camera. So that doesn't bother me. But a lot of writers are shy people, and that's why they write because they express themselves in the written word. But in this world, you've got to be able to go out and shake hands and talk to people. It's like being a politician, sort of. Yeah. And, and that's the hard part. Um, you know, it, it's. Begging people for reviews is the other part. <laughs> Please review my book. Uh, when I my um, the scent of rain it is was marketed as young adult fiction. I didn't mean it that way because it's about a cult. Yeah, a cult that uh, that was real here. The Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, who they're polygamists and they yeah. marry little girls and their prophet is in prison now for the rest of his life. So I went up there and I pretended that I didn't know who they were and I wandered around and it was very disturbing. But, um, and now I can't remember why I brought that up. This is what happens when you get old. We were marketing and like putting yourself out there and like, yeah, I, something about that book brought that up. I, Probably so, having to put yourself out there to get the information, most likely. No, I, I, that was. I, I have to tell you, I don't. I'm not easily frightened, but I was That's frightened up there. I was frightened. There was someone following us. I, I brought one up with a friend. We pretended that we were looking for real estate that she was retiring, and and uh, it was very creepy. I believe that, it. That's I a think that was a disturbing book. A very because I I interviewed a woman who escaped from there. And always you'd see her, Flora Jessup was her name. Whenever they talked about that on the news, she'd be on CNN. And I called her and I said, can I talk to you about escaping from there? And she said, sure. She came to my house, sat at my desk. I 
started my recorder, she spoke for three hours at, without me saying much of anything. And it was so atrocious, the story she told me about living there and escaping and getting pulled back and the stuff that they did to the kids. And I felt like I wanted to scrape my flesh with a wire brush. I mean, it was awful. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not sure why I brought that up in the first place, but... <laughs> So. That's that sounds scary. No, you're good because that it brings up another like topic. Like how how did you hit like I didn't you said you wanted to scrape your skin off and everything, but how did well, you handle writing that? Like it that was a very difficult book to write um, because of the abuse of the children. I mean, the girls are treated like like property. Mm -hmm. it, that man had eighty wives. He was marrying twelve year old girls. And so the story is told from the from oh I know what I was gonna say the story is told from uh, a 16 year old girl's point of view mm -hmm. and she wants to I mean they shut down all the schools there they wouldn't allow them to be educated um, and so when I was trying to promote that book I had to contact bloggers who did young adult fiction and very often they on their their biographies it would say well i'm 19 and i like the color pink and unicorns and i would have to write to them and say please review my book it was kind of like oh hmm all right but uh that book was very difficult um and yeah. people got some people were angry with me uh, because for example there's a part and this is pretty awful um the prophet decided that they weren't having enough babies and women are supposed to have 20 babies Oh my good yeah. no. The women who have the 20 babies, they're worshipped by everybody else, basically. So it's constantly having babies. You're constantly pregnant. And uh the, the prophet, this is the, what the woman told me who came to my house. She said, he got up and he told everybody, um, if you have a pet, you are not serving God. That you if you can afford a pet, you can you can afford another baby. So he ordered them all to kill their pets. Oh my good lord. Children had to kill their dogs, ponies. There's a giant masquerade of dead pets. Man. And I put that in the book. I put a scene in where they make an, a handicapped man kill his dog. And people were furious. People were like, I couldn't even read that book. I said, you know, but it's about children being abused. I'm an animal lover. I've got cats and dogs. And I but it happened and it's yes, true. It and was it's true. A part of history that we need to know about. Yeah. And, and she, I, I, I honestly, I never listened to that tape again. I didn't, I took notes while she spoke, but it was so awful. The stories and about how the sheriff was involved. So the first time she ran away, the sheriff came and got her and brought her back and she was chained. She was locked in a room for months. And the only job they'd give her, they, the only place she could go was the birthing clinic. She had to go clean up the birthing clinic every day because women just constantly have babies. So the good news is that Enclave is broken apart. He's been in, he's in prison. The people, they actually have a school now, real school now, and the kids, kids are getting educated. So it's gotten a lot better, but that was a very difficult book to write. Very I believe it. Gosh, that's, but you also can't just back on the person commenting about how they had to, they had trouble reading that. You can't pick and choose what happens in history because no, a lot I'm of bad sure. things happened in history. I explained in the acknowledgments that that these stories were true, mm -hmm. and and I that, like I said, I take true things and I, I weave them into fictional accounts. Yeah, but um, yeah, I, and I did that because I started seeing stories about this cult in the newspaper, and it's five hours from me. It's five hours from here, and and I thought, how could this be happening in America? How could we have little girls married to old men? They had no TV, no phones, no internet, no newspapers, nothing. They were told what to do. 
all their finances were controlled. And, and if, if, if the prophet or any of his buddies wanted your daughter, you had to turn her over. And the men who refused to do that were thrown out of the cult and their wives and children were given away to other men. Holy in, in our God. country, like in the last 10 years, this was happening. Wow. That's insane. I can definitely like see how that was hard. And you know, it's funny. I'm not afraid of much, um, but I had my camera. I'm up there. My friend's driving around. I was afraid to take a picture. I was. I didn't take any pictures. We went to the places she told me about um, and, you know, did some recon on it basically, but I didn't take any pictures because I knew we were being followed. Man, and that you is know, scary. it wasn't until maybe 25 years ago that you could even drive in there because they would stand with rifles on the road on the turnoff. And, but then it was determined that the state built those roads and they can't keep people out. So they put a gas station there in a little store, but the store was frightening. You know, the, the women all wore prairie dresses. I don't know if you've seen pictures of this, but they have their hairs, they have real elaborate hairdos, but they all wear these long, like to the ground, completely covered prairie dresses. And I went into this little market with my friend and there's a little girl, maybe four years old, all dressed in her, she looked like a little doll in a, in a cart. You know, she was standing in the grocery cart and I smiled at her and she looked at me and she was terrified. Like I was the devil. Mm. And I felt as a teacher, I was crushed. Like this child is afraid of me. And then three girls, like maybe teenage girls were walking towards us. They looked at me and my friend, they turned around and walked away and went in a door. So they didn't have to see us. It was the weirdest thing. That is crazy. Yeah. That was a so hard book. Those experiences, did you have similar, well, I guess not similar experiences to that exactly, but did you have similar crazy experiences when researching all of the books that you've written? Um, they've all, some of them are pretty dark. I have to say my first one, A Light in the Desert, um, my baseball partner was a Vietnam veteran mm -hmm. and he's deceased now. He had Agent Orange poisoning, cancer, all the things oh, that come with that. Lord. Um, he'd done two tours. He was, he, he, they thought he was killed in Vietnam. Uh, his family buried him in an empty coffin and then he woke up in Saigon wow. in the hospital. So, um, he was a charming man. And when I first came back to Phoenix, when I, I, I worked at ESPN, I anchored sports center for a couple of years, but then I was too old. Nobody would put me on TV and I felt real sorry for me. I was a big baby and, uh, I met Don and we became umpire partners. So four or five nights a week, we did baseball. It's the yes. only thing anybody would pay me to do at that point. Mm -hmm. I hadn't become a teacher yet. And I would whine about not being on TV. And my husband was an alcoholic and, you know, all the poor me party. And here was this guy who had post-traumatic stress, who was completely crazy, who struggled with his memories of the things he did in Vietnam, who couldn't forgive himself for the things he did in war and who has eight kids and his family doesn't understand him because he's now he's got post-traumatic stress. And this is before anybody knew what that was. Yeah. Post-traumatic stress, most everybody knows what that is today. So that book I wrote for him. And even though he was not a sniper and the protagonist in A Light in the Desert was a sniper, the stories are Don's stories. Their stories are actual things that happened to him. So I took the wreck of the Sunset Limited, the train that was derailed and tied in my friend and his stories. Because I'll tell you, after listening to him for years, I realized I was just being a baby. 
Okay, I had nothing to complain about. And I was embarrassed in a way. I thought, God, all I did was whine about me and my poor life. And then he started telling me stories about Vietnam. And I went, oh, gosh, I'm a jerk. You know, so um, it was hard, but I did. And it was funny as he when he was dying, his wife read him the book. And uh, he the last time I saw him, I had a game. I went over to his house and held his hand. And and he was so excited that I told the stories for him. So that's hard. You know, yeah. and, and uh, we he was like my best friend. And he taught me so much about, you know, not complaining about stupid stuff. That is amazing. All of your books sound amazing. And I Thank love you. the research you've done into them. But we have hit our time mark, Miss Annie. So go ahead and tell our viewers and listeners where they can find these amazing pieces that you've created. The best way to, to get a hold of anything about me or my books is just go to my website. And it's Anne Montgomery author. I'm sorry, I should know my own website. You're Montgomery <laughs> writer. Dot com and that's Anne with an E. So it's AnnMontgomeryWriter.com. There are links to all my books. There's podcasts. There's all kinds of things on there. So yeah, um, that's the best way to reach me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the chat today. I've enjoyed it. Anytime.